what we've been looking at is the life of David. David, who is yet to be king, but he's now anointed to be the king. And that means for him, he's in a process of being prepared. And when you're being prepared, it means that you're being tested. The idea of being king sounds quite appealing. The idea of being tested doesn't. Does that sound fair enough? It does, I know, for all of us. How often do we find ourselves in places where we are being tested, and it wasn't actually our choice to be tested this way. We'd like to be tested by things that are easy. Well, that, define, that doesn't, doesn't mean you're being tested at all. By definition, being tested means that you're being stretched and pushed and challenged in ways that you never have been before. David is in a bit of a pickle. He finds that uh, Saul, the king who is there at the present time, doesn't like the idea of this young guy called David emerging with so much popularity. And it's this popularity with the people that really bothers Saul the most. And yet we've got this problem going on because Saul is still God's sovereign choice. Saul is still God's anointed choice. And yet David is the, the young man who's about to rise and merge through this time of testing to be the future king of Israel. Three times Saul has now tried to kill David. Three times is enough to indicate that Saul is actually a nutca- nutcase. He's a psychopath. Okay? And so therefore David is on the run. He's on the run, and being on the run, he abandoned uh, the city where he was living with the king. He abandoned that city, and he went to a, a small town called Nob, N-O-B, Nob. And here was a place where the priests uh, gathered to, to worship and to learn and to train. And the head priest was a guy called Abiathar. And David went to Abiathar and he said, look, I'm desperately desperate. Uh, I need some uh, supplies. I need some equipment. Will you help me? I'm on the king's, I'm on the king's uh, journey. I'm doing something for the king, which was an absolute lie. However, what happened was Abiathar says to him, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Abiathar said to him, what is it that I can give you? And he said, well, I need a weapon. He says, well, the only weapon we've got is uh, Goliath's sword, Goliath whom you killed. David said, that'll do. And he said, the the food that we've got, uh, well, we haven't actually got any food. The only food in the place is the showbread, which is set apart as a sacred bread for the purposes of worship. And David said, yep, that'll do as well. So he takes the bread, he takes the sword, and he gets out of there. And then we find that Saul has found out where he is. And so Saul is chasing him down with this small band of men who are his, probably his favorite soldiers at the time. And he gets to Nob and he talks to Abiathar and he accuses Abiathar of helping this runaway and conspiring against him. Of course, the priest knew nothing about it. The priest just thought he was on a mission from the king and therefore they were very innocent parties in all of this. So what occurs now is probably one of the most devastating things you'll see in Scripture, where Saul looks at Abiathar and said, you have conspired against me, therefore you and your priests are going to die. Well, the soldiers around Saul said, no, we're not going to kill the priests. They knew this was a huge injustice. But Saul had a shepherd by the name of Doeg, and he was an Edomite. So Doeg the Edomite steps up and says, I'll do it. And so Doeg the Edomite, under Saul's direction, kills 85 priests that day. 85 priests give their life. Why? Because Saul is a psychopath. Okay? Saul is a nut job. 
Okay, Saul has all authority and he's using it in the worst possible way. David, however, is on the run and he's supported in the short term by his family. Scriptures in 1 Samuel 21, 22.1 said, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there, which is a nice family gathering and no doubt you need friends when you're in a difficult, when you're in a difficult space and time. But not only does David have his family, David starts to gather all of the criminals, all of the malcontents, all of the difficult people who have been living outside of the city, often criminals who have been chased and haven't been caught, and 400 of them rallied to David. So David went from leading this group of righteous men who were defending God and the king to leading this rabble, this absolute rabble of uh, of people who are the least of the least in society, the cast-offs, the unwanted. And so David is now learning to lead at a completely different level. But not only was he learning to lead at a different level, he was learning to lead it in a different place. And this is the, uh, the resort called the Valley of Engedi. This is literally the picture of the Valley of Engedi, or one of the valleys in Engedi. And it's a, it's a hard place, isn't it? It's a very, very difficult place to learn the lessons, to be tested. But we find that in Scripture, the desert is the place where God sends us when he's wanting to get our attention the most. And the thing about the desert is that it's never welcomed, but it should never be feared. It's a place that God takes you to prepare you for something else, to prepare you for a greater mission, to prepare you for greater responsibility. And whilst you're in the desert, God has your attention. Why? Because nothing else lives there. It's God or nothing, isn't it? God or nothing. And so here we have Saul pursuing David. David is surrounded with this rabble. His family's there helping him out. And in this desert, you find that there's a, there's a, there's a, a stillness, there's a dryness, there's an aridness that comes from just being isolated and separated. And David now starts to think about the things of his soul, think about his condition. And he's very, very honest with God. And one of the beautiful things about doing a study on David is that we've got the book of Psalms where a whole lot of what David was thinking and feeling is recorded for us. So if we go to Psalm 142, this psalm was written during the time when David was in En Gedi. It says here, I cry aloud to the Lord, I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. In those last few lines there, David sums it up. He says, they are too strong for me. David in his own strength cannot defend himself against thousands of warriors who are seeking him to destroy him. But yet the final words there are really compelling about 
David's own heart, aren't they? He says, set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. In other words, people will see that David is blessed. And people will say, if he's blessed, I want to be where the blessing is. And so therefore, people will gather about him because of God's goodness to him. And it's a a beautiful way to finish a very, very difficult cry from the heart. And so we've got this picture now, and we need to imagine what it would have been like for David. Going through this, this valley, and the scriptures tell us that things are getting tight, things are getting close. You've got the army of Saul walking along one side of the valley, and David and his men scurrying like, 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 like scared animals on the other side of the valley. And they come to a place like a cave, it says. A cave, a big cave. And all of his men went inside the cave, which clearly tells me that they're getting to a very, very desperate point. They're hiding now in places that are largely indefensible. You can't defend yourself in a cave. All you have to do as an attacker is light a fire at the entrance of the cave and sit back and wait for it to happen, for all the men to come out, put them to the sword. It's a very, very difficult place to be. The thing about a cave is that it's, it's black, isn't it, inside? It's claustrophobic, it's breathless, it's stagnant, it's lonely, it's lifeless, and it's silent. And if you haven't been, there will be a time in your life when you feel that you're in this same cave. When everything seems against you and life is despairing. Maybe, maybe you've just had a, a difficult health diagnosis. Maybe you've got some real challenges with some relationship failure going on somewhere with friends or family. Maybe work problems or redundancy is impending. Maybe the clients aren't coming in to your business as you would have liked. And you feel like you're isolated. You feel like you're lonely. You feel like you're in this cave and there's nothing anybody can do to help you. And it's a very, very desperate place to be. So, What happens in the story? David is in the cave with his men. They see Saul coming down the valley. And let's pick up the story out of 1 Samuel 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Saul went to go to the toilet. David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands to you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Well, this is a uh, a powerful, powerful story, isn't it? More powerful by the fact that David was being pushed cajoled, prodded, goaded by 400 men in the back of the cave. 400 men who were saying, if you can just simply kill this guy, our problems will be over. We won't have to run in the desert anymore. We won't have to live in the caves anymore. 
So much so that what we find here is that the men are saying to David, this is the day of the Lord. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Okay, so you can see the men there. They're, they're dealing with this, this challenge that they're facing right now. Uh, so they could see the soldiers outside. They see of all the caves to go to the bathroom in, Saul is now walking up the hill towards them and you can see the men going, hey, guess what? God's delivering the enemy. We can see him walk in the cave. They're all at the back. 400 sets of eyes staring out on Saul. And they were going, David, this is your chance to kill him. And David's like, hey, 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 this isn't, this isn't what I'm going to do. No, 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 David, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. You know, um, and David will be going, no, I'm not going to kill him. You know, my righteousness is such that I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And here he is trying to convince the rabble that you can't kill the king's anointed. And he's the only one there standing between Saul and Saul's death. And so what happens? The rebel decide to become prophets. They become prophets and they say, this is the day the Lord has spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. There's actually no such scripture in scripture. And this is what happens when we're desperately desperate to find the will of God. We make it up. You know, we can imagine them in the back there. Um, you know, I think it says somewhere that this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said, I'll give your enemy into your hands for you to do as you wish. And they'll be going, yeah, 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 I'm sure that's in Scripture somewhere. If you say it with a few uh, thines and this on the end, you know, we can convince David that this is the word of the Lord. Cometh into thy cave, O enemy, and I smiteth thee, and it is God's will. That's a good one. Should we tell David that one too? See, they're making it up as they go because they are desperate to get out of a desperate situation. And they know in their own, with their own morality and their own righteousness, they would have just walked up the guy and gone, run him in. But no, David is saying, we don't do this. And so we find this story now grows into something far greater than we ever expected. It's turned in a way that we're seeing something completely different. Saul is seeking vengeance on David. And David is saying no. I read a story um, recently at a Reader's Digest magazine of a lady living in London, an elderly lady. And she'd go to the supermarket, or should I say the corner dairy, and uh, she'd call in every day and buy just a couple of items, just enough to get her through the day. And she um, would do this regularly, like every day, every day. And after many months, she looked up the shopkeeper and she goes, I suppose you wonder why it is that I come in and just buy a few items every day. And he goes, yeah, I was sort of wondering about that. And she said, well, I'll tell you why it is. She said, I'm an elderly lady and I've got my nephew living with me and I hate him. And I can't stand the thought of dying and leaving him a fridge full of food. <laughs> like, wow. Wow. That's, it's, it's so human it could be true. Eh? So human it could be true. But this is a little bit like, like Saul. His vengeance had twisted his mind. His vengeance had twisted his mind. And now we find how David responds to, to this uh, to, uh, sorry, how Saul responds to him. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king, 
When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. You see, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the King of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. I think these are one of, this is some of the most powerful scripture in the whole of the Bible. Because it has an echo forward, not an echo backwards, but an echo forward. It, it brings me quickly to a place where I see Jesus going to the cross, silent like a lamb to the slaughter. It's an echo that looks forward to that Christ-like character that we are called to when Jesus says to us that we should turn the other cheek. When Jesus says that we should treat others as we ourselves would like to be treated. This is the echo forward, a prophetic uh, situation that speaks of what it means to be a follower of God under Christ's leadership. David's character here is absolutely exemplary and absolutely outstanding, especially when you consider he was probably still only a youth of 18, 19, or 20 years old. A man whose wisdom and character was way beyond his years because he knew that there was a victory greater than taking the life of Saul. That was to have a moral victory. That was to have a victory of righteousness, a victory that took all of the Lord's values and put them into a perspective that allowed Saul to live but still learn the lesson that he had to learn, that David was for him, that David acknowledged that he was still the Lord's anointed. And in spite of all the circumstances that had put David into a cave, put David in, into a place where he admits himself he's just a dead dog, a flea, that still he wouldn't raise up against somebody who was after his life. So how does Saul respond? When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You're more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my, family, my father's family. 
So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. For Saul, this was a poignant moment, a sober moment, a time when all of a sudden the realization of whom he was trying to kill came back and bit him or hit him in a fierce and significant way. For him to say, is that the voice of David, my son, means that he has taken away this sense of David being the enemy. He is now a member of the family. Because why? Because David has treated him like the father-in-law that he is. David has treated him with respect. David has treated him with honor. David has treated him with love. And did he deserve it? Not one bit. Did he deserve it? Not one bit. And this is why this is a prophetic utterance, an echo forward into the future, as it gives us this image of Jesus. You see, for us to do unto others what we would have them do to us is essentially what David is providing here. David didn't take his life. Instead, he provided Saul with a lesson of what righteousness actually looks like, of how a godly character actually outworks itself in a difficult place. And for each one of us, we find ourselves at different times in the back of the cave. And we have choices that we can make. We have opportunities in front of us. We can take on those who are accusing us and condemn them or meet them with fire equal to the force that we have been given. Or we can say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Bless those who curse you. And this is the Christian way. For David... This was an opportunity to prove to Saul that whilst he was yet to be king, he was worthy of the kingdom. And he proved to all of those men that you didn't, even though you were a man of the sword and men of war, you didn't have to win every battle by, by drawing people's blood. So Saul was humbled. But the difficulty with being humbled is that your mind can play tricks on you. You see, to be humbled is to find yourself in a place where you realize that you were wrong. To be humbled is to come to a place where you acknowledge that your actions weren't as good as they could be, or your words weren't as good as they could be, or your information wasn't as good as it could have been, and you made a judgment that wasn't accurate. So that's where we found Saul, humbled. The sad thing for Saul is that this story doesn't stop here because in a couple of weeks we're going to find a very similar scenario which starts off with Saul pursuing David. Saul pursuing David. And we find out that Saul, in his humility, in, in being humbled, actually took it the other way and he was humiliated. You're humiliated when you feel that you've been publicly shamed, but it's not actually your fault. You get that? You've been publicly shamed, but you feel that it wasn't justified. For David, exposing Saul's uh, lack of righteousness here, gave Saul a choice. He can say, I will be humbled, or he'll look at, and look at David and say, you taught me a lesson, or he will be humiliated by turning away from David and looking at those he was leading and say, I now look less than I am in the eyes of my men. You see, the biggest problem that Saul had is that he couldn't be wrong. He didn't know how to be wrong. 
In fact, being wrong was worse than anything else. So instead of being humble, he was ashamed. And once you're ashamed, you're humiliated. Once you're humiliated, you seek revenge. And that's the vicious cycle that David had the opportunity and chose to put an end to. But there was a second party to this, and therefore the story is going to continue. And that's what's going to happen in your life. If you find a scenario where you've done something wrong, it's really important to just admit it and say, I got it wrong and I apologize, and then you leave it there. But if you say, I got it wrong, but, 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 I'm ashamed, and then you're humiliated, and this whole story will go another chapter or another round, and it will never probably cease in your lifetime until you see the power of the cross and realize that every one of us will be wrong at some time in our lives, more than once probably. That's the power of the cross to meet us at that point of need and say, you are forgiven, you are only human, and you can be restored and renewed. Sadly, with the opportunity that was given to him, Saul didn't take it. Therefore, the story is going to continue. Why don't we stand for prayer? Father, we all find ourselves at the back of a cave, in that place where everything seems stagnant and breathless, where it's dark and formless and we feel just so separated from you. We cry out, Lord, like David did in that psalm, saying, Father, where are you? Only those who seek my life are around me, no one to lift my right hand. But you, Father, will allow us an option, an opportunity to pour fuel on a fire or to extinguish it with your righteousness. We thank you for the lessons that we find in Scripture, and this is a powerful lesson for us because we see that prophetic vision of what it would mean as Jesus came on the scene and how it is that we have been called to a journey. It doesn't make us a doormat, but gives us the ability to say, Lord, vengeance is yours, not ours. And so we ask God for your favor to be upon us as we're reminded of the caves that we're in, of the dry places in our lives, of the desperate situations we find ourselves in, that you would give us favor, that you would give us life, and we would do life your way, not ours. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.